Welcome to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Tonight on Zocalo, L.A. versus New York, who's got the scoop on Hollywood? Four ace Hollywood journalists, Sharon Waxman and Laura Holson of the New York Times, and Patrick Goldstein and John Horn of the Los Angeles Times discuss how the industry is perceived on opposite coasts. Does L.A.'s hometown paper have the edge in covering the quintessential Los Angeles business? Or does the New York Times bring an outsider's perspective that enlivens the newspaper's coverage of the industry? Recorded before a live audience and presented by the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series and the Huntington USC Institute on California and the West, our discussion of industry trends and trendsetters begins with Dana Harris, film editor at Variety and moderator for tonight's program. So what we want to discuss here is how Los Angeles and New York each cover Hollywood, compare, contrast. And one of the first questions I want to ask is, what is the L.A. Times mandate for covering Hollywood? What do your bosses tell you when they say how they want you to approach the business? They tell us we want to own the Hollywood beat. That's what they always say. <laughs> We're like, still we, trying to figure out what that means. Yeah. I, was I don't say, know if I'm supposed to you know, have cash handy or what, but uh, obviously we're an L.A. newspaper, so they would like us to take a special interest in this because it's a hometown backyard business, so everybody feels like this is an area that we should really excel in. So for years, first when I covered the music business and now covering you know, more Hollywood and pop culture, they're always saying, how do we own this story? How do we have more in-depth coverage, more variety, more diverse look at Hollywood? Do we do more stories behind the scenes? Do we do stories about more of the inside players? Every year there's a, a new look at this. Well, but I think the governing or organizing principle for all of it is that Ideally, we want to come up with stories that are as attractive to trade readers as they are consumer readers. That a good story in the paper is one that is read by studio executives, producers, filmmakers, and the general readership. And those stories do not come easily, and they're hard to find. And But when you get one, I think it's what our editors like, stories that people are talking about. So I think it's not any different from news stories. It's just particular to the film business that you have two segmented audiences that the editors both want us to appeal to, the trade audience, meaning the studios and then the consumers. If you're looking at the Venn diagram of trade readers and consumer readers, though, I mean, how much overlap is there between the two? Or do you find that there's, is it seamless? Is that a problem trying to satisfy both readerships? Well, I think if you try to write a story uh, aimed at both readerships, it's going to be difficult. But there are a lot of people who work in the business who read the LA Times. They don't rely on Variety and The Hollywood Reporter for their news. So if a story is compelling and good, it could and should have equal appeal to somebody running a studio as it does somebody who lives down the street and has been taking the paper for the last 20 years. Okay, I want to ask you guys the same question. What do your bosses say in terms of what your mandate is for covering Hollywood? What's your approach supposed to be? Uh, Laura and I write for different sections of the paper. I write for the culture section. Laura writes for the business section. But often our beats overlap, but we have different editors. But I think to some degree we have similar issues in terms of finding stories that will 
describe Hollywood as if it were a foreign country in some ways. To is that, is that still the is that still the the focus? Well, it's both. It's two things at the same time. To the vast majority of our readers, of our million and a half, or million two, or million eight on Sundays, who read the paper but don't know Hollywood and want to learn about it. But we also have a very, very fiercely aware and interested and invested group of readers who are in Hollywood, who are players in Hollywood, and they read the paper like Samistat. And if you, God forbid, say something that they take wrongly, you'll hear about it. Or if they think that it can be interpreted badly, you'll certainly hear about it. So you, So it's that... We have a certain tension all the time between writing knowledgeably about the inside of the business and also writing about it for this broader readership, which is most of our readers. Laura? I think what you want to do is also surprise your readers. Hollywood is this very curious thing to most people. They see the Us Weeklies, they see the In Touches, the People magazines, and what we're trying to do, which I would imagine our colleagues are at the LA Times as well, is really just explain this world to readers so that, give them a little bit of context, the kind of the why behind it all. uh, So much of entertainment is truly a business, and I think people are really recognizing that, and they're really interested in it. And if we could help kind of give them some insight into how the world works, then we're doing our job the way we should. So I'm going to flip these questions over. How do you guys see the New York Times mandate for covering Hollywood? I don't know what the mandate is. I just judge it by the product. They do a really good job of covering, I think Sharon mentioned, there's the culture stories, and then there are the business stories. And just like at our paper, sometimes those stories overlap. But I think if you are reading two newspapers like our two, you're going to get a really in-depth, incredibly broad look at Hollywood. The only thing I'd add is that I think we, and I'm sure they do as well, if there are stories that we feel are competitive, we want to be the first to do them. And if we find out that the New York Times is doing a story, either we'll pass on the story completely or we'll try to do it first. And that happens on a regular basis. At least once a month there will be a story that, it may not be a story that I'm doing or Patrick is doing, but that our film staff is doing, where we hear that the New York Times is doing a story. And part of that is rooted in the fact that the former editor of the paper, Dean Baquet, and the managing editor for features, John Montorio, are both New York Times alumni, and they take the New York Times very serious on a personal level. And I think on a professional level in the newsroom, I mean, I can speak from experience. There was a story I was working on a year ago, and it sat in editing for weeks and weeks and weeks, and I couldn't get it in the paper. And I went to my editor, and I said, truthfully, the New York Times is doing the same story. And it ran on the front page of the newspaper the next day. (laughs) Which story was this? It was a story about Louisiana and how it was trying to take film production out of Los Angeles by offering really aggressive incentives. Who was doing the story at the New York Times? David Helfinger. What do you guys see as the mandate of the LA Times? How do you see them differing in terms of the way that they approach Hollywood and the New York Times approaches Hollywood? I think you have to look at the broader context of what's going on in journalism right now. I was in New York last week and talking to a lot of people in New York, and you know, it used to be that you could hold a story for two or three days because you could and just maybe save it for page one, but because there's so much on the Internet these days that you have to be truly, truly competitive and kind of get it out there right away. But as John was saying, at the level of quality at the Los Angeles Times and the New York Times, 
I, I think the world's getting a little bit flat, that we are competitive with each other, but we're also competitive with the whole world out there of bloggers. When I first joined the Times, I covered mergers and acquisitions. And the way you found out about a scoop was basically Friday, Saturday, Sunday, you called around to a bunch of guys and said, hey, what's going on? Now it's like you get a blog where they'll tell you what's going on, and it's already out there. People already know. So in terms of the difference, I think the world is getting a little bit flat for news organizations that have high quality. Have you guys seen a change in the way that the LA Times approaches Hollywood in terms of what what they want from you guys? Well, again, I I think to carry on with what Laura said, a good newspaper now, because of the Internet, I think you have to do much more interpretation and much more analysis instead of writing a straight news story because it's almost impossible to beat the Internet at the straight news story game. Their information flow is so fast. I think what we have, because we have experience and hopefully a little bit of authority, is that we can do analysis and a look at the deeper implications of a story, and that's something we can still do well. But I would argue that one of the things the paper is wrestling with, and Patrick and I certainly hear about this all the time, is that while Internet news sites are doing things quickly, which you would think would suggest that we should do things in more depth. There's also a parallel mandate to do things faster than the Internet. So at one time, we're being charged with getting stories up, just impressions. What happened at a screening of a movie? You went to a premiere, you went to a cocktail party, write a story about it, versus thoughtful, articulate reporting. And I think the paper, and certainly the staff of the paper, is trying to figure out Is there a middle ground? Can you do both? Can you do something that's instantaneous and competitive with Internet news sites and also something that has some depth and meaning? And it's a huge debate within the newsroom and I think within kind of the daily life of a news reporter right now. You're listening to Sharon Waxman and Laura Holson of The New York Times and Patrick Goldstein and John Horn of The Los Angeles Times with moderator Dana Harris of Variety. This is Zocalo. Mark your calendar for thought-provoking live events as the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series takes its show on the road. On February 20th, the irascible columnist, novelist, essayist, and critic Stanley Crouch discusses what he calls the trouble with black popular culture in a lecture at the Center for Healthy Communities at the California Endowment in downtown Los Angeles. And on March 6th, Eric Alterman, prolific author, media critic, and columnist for the nation, visits Zocalo at the National Center for the Preservation of Democracy to explore the emergence of what he calls America's pseudo-democracy. As always, these events are free, but reservations are recommended. To reserve your seats and to download past radio programs, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. We return now to L.A. versus New York. Who's got the scoop on Hollywood? What changes have you guys seen? I mean, especially the time since uh, Bernie Weinraub left the beat. Well, Bernie left the beat quite a long time ago. My predecessor was Rick Lyman, mm-hmm. so he was in that job for, I don't know, three or four years before I came to my job. So Bernie is regarded as somebody who kind of created, who did actually create the Hollywood beat at the New York Times, and he really made a name for the paper out here and did it. He was a foreign correspondent. He'd been in various places around the world and then 
he came here, and I think, and I also, by the way, came from ten years abroad, and came and came to LA not knowing LA. I felt that I, I had the same kind of sensibility, which is this is a very you know strange place that I'm going to describe to people back <laughs> in the home where the paper's based. When I worked for the Washington Post, it was certainly the case. You know, when I'd have editors who would come out here, they would all have on these navy blue blazers and these blue and red striped ties, and you could just spot them from you know ten miles off in Beverly Hills. It was pretty funny. It's very correct military haircuts. The New York Times people are a little hipper than that, <laughs> but, but they really like when we write stories that describe L.A. and Hollywood as like this foreign place. And I think Bernie came along and he kind of established that, set a certain standard for the kinds of things that we do today. But the thing is that it has changed so radically since he stopped writing. I think it was sort of the latter half of the 90s. Is that right, Laura, that Bernie left? Yeah, when I was listening to you talk, I was likening it to, again, what it was like for Bernie coming out here, where you literally had your phone and you're called around going, hey, what's going on? And that has is what's changed dramatically from since Bernie was reporting. It's You can't be truly successful and just call up well, people. Well, there's a lot of things going on. I mean, I actually came here for the same reason. Bernie came in the early 90s. I came in the mid-90s. I moved here from, from Europe, from France. And it was the same idea, which was that essentially there was a lot more interest and a lot more of a spotlight being shined <laughs> on popular culture and on celebrities and on Hollywood, whereas we used to spend a lot more time talking about politics or foreign conflict or the economy or poor people. All of a sudden, there was this interest in there was the rise of the celebrity culture. That was what happened throughout the 90s. And and at a certain point, serious papers like the New York Times or where I was, the Washington Post, decided that they needed to put serious reporters to write about that in an intelligent way. I think that's what Bernie did. But now it's just massive. So now we have a lot of reporters. I'm not alone on the culture desk. I have a colleague, David Hoffinger, who also covers movies with me, Laura. They created this beat for Laura. We have a, a blogger, David Carr, who's a media writer who's now writing about the Oscars almost full time. So there is a feeling that we need to feed this appetite for pop culture and for understanding our pop culture. And on that note, you're speaking about David covering the Oscars for now full-time. I want to ask both of you guys about what you think about the emphasis on awards. Do you think it's gotten to be too much? Do you think we finally hit the ceiling, or do you think it's just going kind of on a... It's gone over. It hasn't hit the ceiling. It went through the ceiling, (laughs) through the roof, and into another solar system. (laughs) This is like my pet peeve, and I get criticized a lot for this. I just think the whole mania about covering the Oscars is wildly out of control. I love movies. I think it is incredibly tragic that we take the best movies of the year, the movies that actually aim high and try to have something to say, and we turn them into a pathetic horse race of which the outcome is who will be the best picture, and we prognosticate endlessly, and nobody ever writes about the actual art form of the movies. It's all about, is someone out campaigning, and if they're not campaigning, how does that hurt the movie's chances, et cetera, et cetera. I think it's revolting. Luckily, my editors let me, even in our special supplement of the newspaper, The Envelope, which is devoted to uh, attracting Oscar advertising, I'm still able to say that. So I, I feel like, okay, you can put me wherever you want as long as you know that's my, I'm a columnist, that's my point of view. I just think it's unbelievably over the top and unhealthy. I wouldn't disagree with a lot of what Patrick said, although what I would say is that campaigning for the Oscar and for any other award has become a business in this town. And the Los Angeles Times 
presumes to write about the business of Hollywood. So as a beat, as a news story, what people are doing for in support of movies, how they're trying to get awards attention, the various fights that happen over all sorts of little arcane things in the award season, I consider to be news, even though the kind of overriding coverage of the awards, especially on the Internet, is insipid, that there is a lot of money and a lot of time and a lot of energy being spent on awards campaigning. And as a newspaper that covers the industry, I think it's part of what we need to cover now. Don't you think John is much more fair-minded than I am? <laughs> Patrick, did you fight against the envelope? Did you try to put up a fight against them launching it? Or? No, no, no. no. Uh, newspapers, as you may have heard, have some great economic difficulties. And I think if you look at the envelope historically, you could argue that it's not so different than what Max Frankel did at the New York Times in the 1980s. When he created all these new sections of the paper, the style section and the food section, and I'm sure that they were roundly reviled at the time by serious, thoughtful journalists who said, you're creating all this superficial stuff that's dumbing down the New York Times. But the New York Times was going through a financial crisis in the 1980s, and it became a much more healthy economic newspaper because of these new sections, and now we take them for granted. So someday, that hopefully, the envelope will be just another section of the paper, and everyone will be past the issues of whether it was created for advertising. But, well, yeah, but what, where I agree with you, Patrick, though, is that there's, there's a challenge of filling that, the space that is supported by advertising with worthy articles, articles that we feel are worthy of our time and articles that we feel are worthy of our readers' time. And there is a tension, and it's complicated because for our papers... Certainly for the New York Times, there's a lot of money to be had in that advertising, and none of us can afford today to say, well, we're too high and mighty to, well, we do what we're, you know, if our editors ask us to write stories, we obviously write them. But even if it's not our favorite thing to do, we know that this is helping sustain, this is the lifeblood of the paper. Certainly, I know that's the case for Variety, too, Dana. Variety makes tons of money, tons and tons of money during the Oscar season. If you ever pick up Variety, and I get it every day, there's these huge, thick, glossy, for-your-consideration covers, and those covers get bought out far in advance by anybody. used to be Harvey Weinstein. Maybe now it's Terry Press at DreamWorks at Paramount, who's smart enough to nab those to get the Oscar voters' attention during the awards season. That's a lot of money that is made in that time of year. And, And if you notice, the editor of Variety wrote a column last week denouncing the L.A. Times for launching a section that would dare to take some of the advertising out of Variety, which was, to my mind, unbelievably hypocritical. I just want to make one small distinction. The envelope exists as a website within the L.A. Times, and it has a separate editorial staff and is kind of wearing the newspaper hat for the paper. The envelope print editions are a collaboration between the website and the print section of the paper. So I think what the print section of the paper is trying to do is raise the editorial quality of content that on the web Patrick and I would think would be sometimes less than perfect. I think that the key, though, is quality, that there's all this talk about delivery systems and whether it's going to be online or whether it's going to be in newsprint. The fact of the matter is people will buy things if they're good. I mean, the entertainment, you know, the movie industry is, for all of us who cover movies, we hear this all the time from them of, you know, how are we going to deliver this on DVD or online and make good movies and people will buy it. And it's the same thing with journalism. Do good journalism and people will pay for it. I mean, the New Yorker exists for a reason. Even if it loses money. (laughs) But it still exists. 
You're listening to Sharon Waxman and Laura Holson of the New York Times and Patrick Goldstein and John Horn of the Los Angeles Times with moderator Dana Harris of Variety. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo Radio is available as a podcast. To sign up for a podcast subscription, go to our website, ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. Click on Zocalo Radio, hit the podcast button, and enjoy hours of thought-provoking interviews. When we return, more from L.A. versus New York, who's got the scoop on Hollywood. Stay tuned to Zocalo. Monday morning at 10, Air Talk comes your way here on 89.3 KPCC. Larry Mantle inviting you to join me as our guests will include playwright and film director David Mamet. We'll also talk about a $2 billion proposal to beautify the Los Angeles River with a string of parks along its length as well as other what would be complementary development. Please join us. That's Air Talk Monday here on 89.3 KPCC. I'm Pat Morrison. Afghanistan was supposed to be the success story, the place where the war on terrorism was going well. But Afghani and U.S. forces are already gearing up for a spring offensive by the Taliban after the snow melts in the mountain passes. Attacks from across the border in Pakistan are unabated. And if there's going to be a military surge, leaders like Speaker Nancy Pelosi want it in Afghanistan. Could we lose Afghanistan? Starting here Monday at 2 p.m. Last week, the Radio and Television News Association recognized KPCC with six Golden Mike Awards, tops among all radio and television newsrooms in the Southland. Congratulations to Kitty Feldy, John Raby, Frank Stoltz, Amy Machado, Rachel Myro, Karen Fritchie, Janice Wachihurst, and Patricia Nazario for their outstanding work. And thank you for the membership support that made this award-winning journalism possible in the first place. 89.3 KPCC, more NPR and more award-winning local news. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to L.A. versus New York, Who's Got the Scoop on Hollywood, with Sharon Waxman and Laura Holson of the New York Times and Patrick Goldstein and John Horn of the Los Angeles Times with moderator Dana Harris of Variety. Besides each other, which outlets do you view as competition? Wow. Uh, That's a good question. I mean, I think the, the journal... I mean, they don't have the editorial staff. I mean, you have to realize the calendar section of the paper has five film reporters and a columnists and critics, and, and then there's a whole another crop of reporters covering the business in the business section, and there's some reporters who tend to dabble in the film business. We had a really good A1 story the other day about a fight between Phil Anschutz and Clive Cussler over the movie Sahara that was written by a national reporter. So I think... When I get up in the morning, I certainly look to see if the New York Times has a story that we don't have, and if they have something we don't have, I'm furious. I, I look to the journal. I don't really look at the trades for competition. I don't think they tend to break many stories. EW a little bit, but I'd say it's really the New York Times and the journal in terms of what we consider our readership to be. I'll tell you a funny story. I wrote a story about uh, a week and a half ago about... Peter Jackson getting fired off The Hobbit. It's not a movie. It's not a script. It's just a book that Tolkien wrote. But because he did the Lord of the Rings series, all the fans out there are expecting Peter Jackson to direct Hobbit, the prequel. And 
basically, Peter Jackson wrote a letter to his fans saying, guess what? New Line Studios has fired me off of The Hobbit because they don't want to settle the lawsuit because he, Peter Jackson, the director, sued New Line over accounting issues having to do with Lord of the Ring. He thinks they owe him money, and New Line doesn't want to open up their books. And so, therefore, they're, they're chucking me off The Hobbit. So I wrote a note to Matter saying, I'm going to write this story for tomorrow's paper or the next day's paper. And he wrote me back saying, okay, make sure that you note that Variety wrote this story last week because we're very conscious at the New York Times about not taking credit where we shouldn't, that if we thought of a story idea, somebody else already wrote it. And I said, so normally we'd be like, well, you should give a nod to Variety. And I said, well, actually, Variety took it from the web. <laughs> this had already been up on this obscure fan site, the OneRing.net. So I said, really, we should, so it sort of shows you the, the devolving of this process of where news breaks and how we all have to, as Laura was saying before, watch everywhere. It's like you don't know where it's going to come up next. So I did talk about the OneRing.net, which is this bunch of geeky guys who like Peter Jackson and were very up in arms about the fact that he might not direct The Hobbit. And maybe now he will. <laughs> but it's funny how, how people are kind of taking from each other. I was reading, I think it was the Post, the New York Post today. I don't think it was the Daily News. And there was a whole story about Angelina Jolie and, you know, talking about her relationship with Brad. And it was all quotes from Vogue. <laughs> I, thought, I thought, that's a little bit odd. They didn't even get their own interview. You know, it just it struck me as kind of funny. And I thought, well, why would Angelina go to Vogue to tell her story? You know, why wouldn't she come to Diane Sawyer? And it seems everybody goes to Diane Sawyer. People are telling their stories in different ways, and particularly directly with fans. I think that's a really good, good point. How do you guys feel about, uh, in terms of the Internet, are there any particular online outlets that you follow with any kind of regularity? Patrick is, is good about reading everything online. It's because he doesn't leave his house. <laughs> <laughs> so I get my cup of coffee, I go downstairs to my office, and yeah, uh, the Internet is the first, it's like the first wave of stuff that's breaking. And sometimes it's bloggers that are internet only. Sometimes it's people that are hybrids. Ann Thompson, who works at The Hollywood Reporter, but also writes a really good blog. You look to people because they're often correlating things. Movie City News has a lot of stories that you can go there. Slate Magazine, when I'm looking at pop culture, I want to read Slate because they have really good original ideas and good writing. And again, Slate, 10 years ago, would have been a magazine. It would have come in the mail. Now I just go on the Internet and read it. It's really the same concept. More with the Internet, I think you're looking to see what everyone else is writing about and to see if there's a um, sense of something building that a lot of different smaller people are all getting interested in. That's one way of knowing if there's a story that's starting to have legs and that we should figure out how do we respond to that story. It's out there now. Right. I would just add that I think the danger of surfing for stories is that I think it's incumbent upon, if you're a war reporter, you'd be out on the battlefield. If you're a mergers and acquisitions reporter, you'd be covering deals. If you're a film reporter, you're seeing movies. And I think there's no substitution for going out and seeing movies and meeting with filmmakers. Patrick and I try to have lunch every week with a studio executive, an agent, and talk about the process of filmmaking. So even as you're keeping one eye on the competition and the conversation, you're also trying to get out there, seeing movies ahead of the New York Times, and writing about movies that you think have an interesting story behind them. Actually, you want to lead. I agree with you on that. You want to, you want to be the leader. You don't want to be the follower. 
you don't want to, you know, 15 people have already done the story. I'm a little bit like, huh, that's probably not right for me. I'd rather be the writer, and I think all of us at this table would rather be the writer to come up with the big thought that other people go, huh, about. And I think as it's evolving in the film business, certainly I have argued, and not entirely successfully, that within our paper, I think celebrity news is something that we can't compete on. I think we can do thoughtful profiles. I think we can write about filmmakers. Define celebrity news. Well, writing about personalities, actors. I mean, Brad and Angelina. I don't think that if we got a Brad Pitt interview, maybe people would read us. But I just think there are other magazines that do those stories well. They do them aggressively. And I'm not talking about Us Weekly. I'm talking about Vogue, you know, doing the, the Angelina story. That the stories that I think distinguish a newspaper are the stories that are original in their idea and their execution. And you can have the best writer in the world writing about a movie star, and it's still going to be a story about a movie star. And I think the era in which the L.A. Times or even the New York Times was defined by having great personality pieces is gone because those stories, you look at the magazine covers in a bookshop now, every magazine that 10 years ago had fashion models on the cover has celebrities on the cover. So I I don't think we can compete in that game in a meaningful way anymore, and I don't think we should be. I'd I'd go way further than that. I think the whole celebrity profile is gone and dead and buried and it's just going through the motions it's become a parody of itself and i don't think that gives people you tell my editors that (laughs) i'd be happy to tell your editors that we hardly do them anymore and i used to do them every once in a while a few a year when i was at the washington post and i'd have a nice big chunk of space to do it in their style section but that form just that form of journalism has first of all i can tell you that with very rare exceptions you are not getting anywhere near to understanding that person i think most people here in the room have probably read the celebrity profiles and you can you can predict how they go how they start how you're writing down pch and with the top down and the hair is going and then you stop and you have lunch and Sharon Stone giggles as she drops something on the floor and her breast spills out of the... You know what I mean? It's like I've just read it so many times. I am grateful to leave that to other publications because I think that they're just treading their wheels. They basically should just run the picture on the cover and spare all the trees, <laughs> is my feeling. Yeah, um, I don't know. I, I kind of learned I about Brad did, and Angelina uh, that they... Uh, <laughs> That they um, didn't start dating until after Mr. and Mrs. Smith. I and was she'd kinda... love to talk to Jennifer any time. I know. I was kind of <laughs> curious about that. Surely it has some readers. Uh, but the one thing, uh, you know, I, I think this would be true of everyone here. If you really want information in Hollywood, you, you don't go on the Internet. If you want information in Hollywood, you go have lunch with agents. Agents have all the inside information. It's their living their job is to know everybody's deal, everybody's weaknesses. So we have lunch with a lot of agents. That's a, a great way to look for stories, go trolling for information, because they are collectors of early breaking information. So that, just from a pure journalism standpoint, that's what you do. And if you pay them enough, they'll sometimes give you that information. <laughs> that was Talk a joke. It. He was joking. I just want to say that for everybody in the room. Because we don't have any money at the LA Times. <laughs> They make give far more money than we do. So I want to talk about a different kind of uh, celebrity. Anthony Pelicano, talk to me about how your papers approached and covered that story. Well, I'll say it right now that New York Times kicked our ass on that story. And I am fortunately conflicted out of writing about it because of a family relationship, not with Pelicano. I think it was a great story. And I think the New York Times, it was David Helfinger and Alison Hope, is it Weiner? 
did incredible enterprise reporting on it. And it's one of those stories I talked earlier about stories that are read by both the, the business and by the consumer press. And I think that story had that kind of resonance because it was a story about the inner workings of Hollywood and what somebody will do to get ahead and what will somebody do to get even. And I, it was a dark day when, when every New York Times story came out on Pelicano case, and I was in the newsroom a couple of those days. It was a dark day because the paper did exceptionally well. So what happened with you guys? Why weren't you on it? Boy, as I work at home. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I'm sure, I mean... No, no, I don't, I don't think we... It's a legitimate we, question. I'm not sure that we know. Uh, obviously, we didn't have the sources, and we didn't have some sense of mission but I would ask you guys, from what you know, why did you guys do such a good job? Did why someone did identify that story early on and say, this is a story we can own? Well, did it help? One of them was a lawyer. What, what, what were the ingredients there? Allison's a lawyer, yeah. Yeah, I think the fact that you know, the Times was interested in the story, you, you know, whenever you have an appetite for anything, no matter where When you say were, the Times had an appetite, like who, who at the Times had an appetite? Well, I think that if you if you read the stories, there was a lot of interesting things happening. And so instead of saying, oh, that's hard or that's complicated, because that's a really hard and complicated story to get at is having sources or, or whatever. They just said, we believe that this is a good story to tell and we're going to do it. I mean, that's that's basic on any story. I, mean, I have to say it was also our, the editor's decisions to support the reporters who had something because you need time to do that. So unless you have an editor who says you can peel off and not cover the movie beat and you can just sit there and go through documents and read until midnight and you don't have to file until you have a story, then we wouldn't have had those stories in the paper because they're very, very labor-intensive. Right. In defense of the LA Times, we did have some stories. We did have some reporting, but it always felt like it was coming on the heels of whatever the New York Times had broken. And, I mean, I think that's... While it was unfortunate for our paper, I think it was very healthy because I think when you're beaten on a story like that, and I know because there were conversations in the newsroom about how to be more competitive on those kinds of stories, and it's something to remember because that's a story that we should have owned, to use the phrase that is tossed around in the newsroom, because it's a great entertainment story, and who knows if there's more to it, but the New York Times was really exceptionally good on that story. You're listening to Sharon Waxman and Laura Holson of the New York Times and Patrick Goldstein and John Horn of the Los Angeles Times with moderator Dana Harris of Variety. This is Zocalo. You know about Zocalo Radio, but have you checked out the Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series? In the coming weeks, the eclectic roving lecture series will feature the irascible columnist Stanley Crouch discussing what he calls the trouble with black popular culture. And Eric Alterman, prolific author and media critic, visits Zocalo to explore the emergence of what he calls America's pseudo-democracy. As always, these events are free, but reservations are recommended. To reserve your seats and to download past radio programs, go to ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We return now to L.A. versus New York. Who's got the scoop on Hollywood? How do you feel about the way the L.A. Times handles this entertainment coverage online? I don't think it's any secret that we have some issues online with our website in general, that we've been pretty far behind a lot of the other big newspapers in 
getting our website up and running and making it user-friendly and putting enough resources into it. It's been a constant battle. It's a very complicated issue what the problems are. Some of them are just systemic to the whole Chicago Tribune-owned system. So I think our website has a long way to go. They've been making a lot of advances and big strides lately. Obviously, it was a big decision to go with the envelope as being the way into covering show business on the Internet. And I think, in theory, it was a good idea to focus on awards and celebrity because I think it was a way to get some instant traction. You know, John and I are really old-fashioned reporters. I I wish we had more substance sometimes. And that's something that's going to come with time and increased commitment. I I just think the jury's still out. If you have read the LA Times online for any period of time, you know that there was a disastrously failed experiment to make the calendar section a subscription-only component of the paper. It was called Calendar Live, and it was a fiasco. And I think it really set us back a number of years because it segregated that coverage from a national readership. The New York Times has something, I have no idea of its successful time select with the columnists, but it's really going after a different audience. The LA Times editors wisely said, our entertainment coverage is one of our best assets. And if people want that, this is where the unwise part starts, they should have to pay a premium for it. And what it meant is that people just ignored the paper. And the challenge for any newspaper including ours, including the New York Times, is to figure out a way to monetize content on the Internet. And that's what we have lots of people worrying about all the time. And we haven't figured out a way to do it. I don't know if the subscription model is going to work. I don't know if it's going to be advertiser-driven. I like to think that information is not a commodity and that people will pay to get access to it. Google and Yahoo are not creating their own entertainment news. We are. You guys are. And the challenge for our newspaper is to figure out how to make money on it, because ultimately, if advertisers are not supporting our content, we're out of jobs, or if subscribers are not paying for it. So the history of the LA Times entertainment coverage is really kind of still growing out of uh, Calendar Live, which I don't know how long it lasted, but it was misery every month that it was going on. You would call up people in New York, and they couldn't read your stories. What about you guys? How... Interested are you as reporters in online coverage, or is is that, to your mind, something else for other people to worry about? Is that something that you want to integrate into your own coverage? I kind of don't know what you mean by online coverage because our stories are online. Yeah, but I mean in terms of blogging or podcasting or trying to you know bring other elements into it besides written words. I think you almost have to these days. I mean, it's all about branding today, isn't it? And branding across many platforms. I don't see how you cannot be involved. The time has passed to just be a straight newsprint writer. You have to be adaptable to the environment. It's almost... Let me ask an audience question. How many people here listen to podcasts? Just show of hands. Okay. That's good. That's a good number. How many people listen to Patrick's podcast with me? (laughs) The disturbing number. You raised your hand. You were lying. (laughs) So I will say, in defense of the paper, we're trying to be competitive. Patrick and I last year did a podcast every week around the Oscar season. We just started it last week. God knows where you could find it on our website. Um, (laughs) They promise it'll be on iTunes within the next millennium. I think we realize that the world is changing and that the idea of people sitting around their breakfast table in the morning and reading the paper is not 
how a lot of people consume news. So we're trying different things. Our editors have asked us to take digital video cameras out to do interviews with celebrities, which I can imagine the publicists are just going to They just go, love that. Just, if you walk in with a camera and interview uh, even a filmmaker without makeup or lighting, they're just going to go apoplectic. But at least we've been trained on the cameras. Actually, um, I want to see that. I want to see the apoplectic well, no. part on video. Yeah, no, no. We're, I think we're going that way. With I think that they're, they're going to start doing that. They're doing that. A couple of our foreign correspondents are already doing that. And as for all the other platforms that we're supposed to be on, I think, first of all, I think it's good for the paper and it's good for us. It's interesting, at least for me, to be able to be online. It's interesting to, the New York Times no longer has television stations, so (laughs) that's not a possibility. But, I mean, we have a really big video component now on our website, and I got to do one story this fall that was really fun where I did a print version and a video version. It's harder when you're out in the bureaus because they don't have the infrastructure. Back in New York, they have actual producers who do nothing but create video versions of our print stories. For for those of us who are ink-stained wretches sort of thing, for a really long time, it's fun to kind of try different things. And we do need to be able to be fluent in all the different kinds of media that exist so that we can adapt to the different readerships. But essentially, I think it's smart to train your reporters to do that and not have different layers of people who then blog or who do the video version, do the print version, because ultimately we are the people who are on the ground who really know. People come to the New York Times for knowledge, for experience. And so if you have different levels of people, oh, the blogger people are not the people who really know. They're just out there doing fun stuff. It doesn't really serve the reader. If I'm a reader, and I am one, and my time is very precious, I want to know in 800 words or in 30 seconds really valuable, smart information. That's why I'm going to the New York Times website or to whichever website I'm going to that I trust. And so I think it's fun for us to learn that, and I think we have to learn how to give that to the reader. But the downside, of course, is that if you are spending your day blogging, you're not reporting. And I think that's what our editors are trying to handle. And a lot lot of reporters also resent not getting paid for blogging because they're not getting paid extra to do – you're expected to do all your articles and to blog in some cases, and you're not paid for it. No, and I think it's very difficult to do blogging. I mean, Patrick, you blogged from the Toronto Film Festival. Is that right? And then to have time to see movies and write meaningful stories. I mean, there are only so many hours in the day. So I want to ask you guys before we run out of time, talk to me about the uh, travails of the Tribune and how has that had any impact on you guys in terms of your reporting life at the paper? Our favorite subject. Mm. Okay, so as you know, you probably read, we, we have a lot of people who want to buy the newspaper. No one's sure if the Tribune wants to sell the newspaper. Our beloved editor, Dean Becquet, and our publisher were forced out in fights over possible staff cuts. Uh, we have a new editor, a new publisher, and we have an uncertain future. The newspaper will be there. We don't know who's going to own the newspaper. I'm a big Chicago Cubs fan, and I noticed the Tribune spent $135 million for Alfonso Soriano. So I know that somebody at the Tribune can put up some money. The question is, clearly, we're not worth that. There are many, many schools of thought about what would be good and what could happen. All I can tell you is, for the moment, it hasn't filtered down to the low, low level that John and I operate on. We write our stories. We cover the business. People ask us the questions, and we try to act like we're well-informed. We don't know how it's going to affect us in the long term. I think, in short... 
It would be great to have a motivated buyer who believed in newspapers and in the future of newspapers and who wanted our newspaper to continue to be a really good newspaper and was willing to put in the money to do that. That would be our dream buyer, someone that still cares about the future paper and cares about quality. Whether we're so lucky as for that to happen, we'll see. Patrick said it very well. I think the issue for the paper is whether or not, as Tribune seems to believe, you can cut your way to excellence. I think the... uh, I think what we hope will happen is that, I mean, I've, I've used this analogy before, is if General Motors is losing market share to Toyota, they don't go home and say, let's make a worse car. <laughs> I would think they say, let's make a better car. And I think a quality newspaper has resources and its commitment to foreign bureaus and it's the news hole, the size of the paper. I think it's staffing. And I think I'm optimistic that I've read the paper every morning since I could read that the next generation of people will read the paper in some way. Maybe it'll be online. Maybe it'll be over their breakfast. But if the paper keeps getting cut, it won't be as vital as it has been. And that, to me, would be a tragic turn of events. Does David Geffen look like your ideal buyer by the outlines that you've seen? I'd say he said all the right things as long as he doesn't make us all write stories about dream girls. <laughs> but if you look at what he said... It's, it's all very appealing. He said that he wants a cultural and philanthropic legacy, that he doesn't have any heirs, that he wants to do something that has some value to the city. It's not an investment. And I guess Patrick and I would probably share concern that the next buyer of the paper would be somebody – we don't want somebody looking at the margins, although those are important. We want somebody who sees a newspaper as an important civic enterprise. Obviously, and I think this is true of all newspapers, you've got to find a way to free, if you were so lucky as to free up the newspaper from the obsession with quarterly earnings and predictions for future profits and give the ownership of the newspaper to someone like David Geffen, for example, who clearly has already made all the money he needs to make in this life and is looking for a legacy and looking for a contribution to the city. In theory, that's a great way to go. I mean, I've written about David Geffen as long as I've written about entertainment, and we've definitely had our ups and downs over the years. But you'd have to say, if you look at his history, first in the record business and then in the movie business and in theater, this is a man who's always been associated with quality and has always wanted to do good quality work. This is not a guy that made his money making B-movies and schlock music. He always did interesting quality work and was attracted to artists. And if he thinks of the newspaper that way, that would be a great thing for us, I think. You're listening to Sharon Waxman and Laura Holson of The New York Times and Patrick Goldstein and John Horn of The Los Angeles Times with moderator Dana Harris of Variety. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Next Sunday, be sure to tune in or click on Zocalo Radio when we present a Zocalo Public Square Lecture Series talk by Jim Newton titled Earl Warren and the Californiaization of America. Newton, the Los Angeles Times City-County Bureau Chief, argues that the Bakersfield native Earl Warren exported to the nation the values of California progressivism. That's next Sunday at 9 p.m. or listen anytime with your podcast. In a moment, our discussion, Who's Got the Scoop on Hollywood, continues with Zocalo's audience asking the questions. Stay tuned to Zocalo.
89.3 KPCC is now broadcasting in HD digital stereo. With a new HD radio receiver, you can listen to our main service and two alternative channels, BBC Mundo, the Spanish language news service of the BBC, and The Current, adult alternative music from Minnesota Public Radio. For more information on HD radio, please visit kpcc.org. there's another way for you to support public radio programming on KPCC. You can donate your used vehicle to 89.3 by calling 877-KPCC-CAR and we'll handle the rest. A representative will explain all of the details. Most important, you'll be supporting the quality programming you expect from 89.3 KPCC. Call today, 877-KPCC-CAR. Welcome back to Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. We return now to L.A. versus New York. Who's got the scoop on Hollywood? With Sharon Waxman and Laura Holson of the New York Times and Patrick Goldstein and John Horn of the Los Angeles Times with moderator Dana Harris of Variety. In this segment, it's Zocalo's audience asking the questions. If you move past the celebrity fluff, as most of you sounded like you wanted to, when you're reporting on the business of Hollywood, big money, financing, loans, bankers, where does that action take place? Is it in the ivory towers of Hollywood or Wall Street? And and how do you get to those stories? It's kind of converging right now, particularly because a lot of Wall Street money is coming to Hollywood, and a lot of private equity firms that have money to invest are investing in movies. So, for example, a a few weeks back, we wrote a piece about Joel Silver, who's a very well-known producer of The Matrix and other movies, who gets his money directly from the bank, so to speak, and in some ways isn't as reliant on the studios to finance his movies. Now, that has happened a lot over time, but the kind of money that's coming into Hollywood now from Wall Street is, it's, I don't, I don't want to say it's unprecedented because I'm sure I'll get a call from someone saying, no, wait, in 1922 this happened. But the waves of money are just unbelievable and, and things are getting made, but only certain things are getting made. I mean, Wall Street doesn't really want to invest in, um, you know, are they going to invest in a broke back mountain? Well, they'll probably go more for comedy and horror because those have more predictable returns. Anything to say on that? No, well said. Well said. Again, I'm just, as someone who watches this, I'm utterly amazed that there's so much money on Wall Street these days. They have nothing better to do than invest in a movie slate. I'm always out to lunch with some producer who is intensely jealous, who's saying, look at that putz over there. He got $200 million. What's he done? It's like a gravy train. It's just a a fascinating sense of Hollywood that it has retained its magnetism for funny money. People love to be in the business, go to the premieres, meet the stars, put their money into what's in cold black and white uh, still a very questionable investment. Yeah, it's it's good for the paper, for the business section, the calendar section, to be able to write about these people, though. What was the coverage of Sumner Redstone's firing of Tom Cruise and Tom Freston like? Because I followed both papers, five minutes New York Times, five minutes LA Times reading, and it was, it was really well, interesting. Five minutes. The journal got the yeah. scoop, so yeah. we give credit to the Wall Street Journal for getting the, the scoop. I mean, I think we had half a dozen reporters working on that story. I mean, I think that was a, I mean, it was a, a big story kind of in and of itself, but it was also representative of a larger story, which was 
uh, studios trying to rein in star compensation and producer compensation. So it was a symbolic act, but I think from certainly from our newspaper and I think from the New York Times, it was a huge story, which, again, the journal broke, but I think led to a series of stories, and I think I might have worked on one of them, about what it said about Hollywood trying to be more fiscally responsible. It was also kind of the loop closing on a story that had started the previous year when Tom Cruise started jumping on Oprah's couch. Or it actually started before then when we started hearing stories. I started hearing stories that Tom Cruise was pushing Scientology I think this was the beginning of the cycle of that story, of those stories, that he was sort of force-marching executives from from some of the international distribution companies through Scientology offices in um, Belgium and then in Hollywood, and, and the executives were getting mad because they'd come from all over the world for these marketing meetings. They had to stay an extra day to do, like, the Scientology tour, and they thought, I didn't really want to do that. And then we had the Scientology tent on the set of War of the Worlds, and then we had the couch jumping and the couch jumping moment that was seen around the world. And so that, that was also the end of that kind of crazy story that there was a lot of interest in it. But I, it was also, of course, part of the, the larger story of what was going on in Hollywood. And also it was a story about Sumner Redstone's deep frustration and anger that his company was being left behind in a lot of areas business-wise, and Tom Freston was, I think, the fall guy for that. Do you think, because a lot of people think of L.A. as a company town, that it creates a filter and maybe even a barrier to the kind of coverage that makes you jealous of the New York Times coverage of the Pelicano story, for example, and gives rise to a story about Sumner Redstone, how his company is falling behind? Well, let me address one thing. I mean, the New York Times, I think, was very competitive and beat us on the Pelicano story. I think the L.A. Times film coverage is far superior to the New York Times. I think we have more depth. We have more variety of stories. We certainly have a bigger staff. So on a couple of stories, they have done better. But I think the L.A. Times has the best film coverage in the nation. I thought we were getting warm and fuzzy there. (laughs) I was feeling a little bit secure. I I will grant them some points on Pelicano, but I will take our coverage day in and day out against theirs and say that ours is better. Of course, I, let me get off. Uh, thank you. Uh, what was the second part of the question? Is it, is it a company town in terms of our wanting to, to edit what we want to say in terms of not pissing people off? Is that the point of the question? I, I actually think we try to p- piss people off. I think the best stories are the stories that people call and, and complain about, not because they're unfair or because somebody is quoted out of context, but because we're not towing the company line. I mean, I, Patrick and I deal with this every day, and I'm sure you guys do too, that there is a whole industry within Hollywood that tries to guide you to stories to write. There are publicists and marketing people, and that the stories that both our newspapers do on a daily basis are the stories they don't want us to write. And I don't think we're throttled by that. I don't think we end up making decisions based on what people expect us to do. I think we do independent Reporting. I think everyone up here uh, takes a sort of deep personal pride in who's not speaking to us because of something we wrote. I wonder if I could ask you to react to the proposition that the death of the daily newspaper is greatly exaggerated. I was listening to CNBC recently, and I heard one analyst talk about the fact that, cyclically speaking, this might be the ideal time to buy newspapers because most businesses are cyclical. And secondly, if you look at usage patterns in your own lives and the lives of others, it seems to me that it's almost impossible to live without a newspaper given the amount of time that it takes to get to the information you want relative to some of the other newer methods 
And most people don't sit at their computers for eight hours a day looking at the internet because they work for a living. And I just wondered what your thoughts might be on that idea. Well, I mean, my thoughts are totally anecdotal and unscientific. I had to move out of my house to remodel, and we moved into an apartment complex with eight units. And everybody was well-educated. There were doctors. There were professional people. We were the only people who took the L.A. Times. And somebody else in the complex took the New York Times and the Journal, and I started sending them the L.A. Times. Um, <laughs> so I think the patterns, when I grew up, everybody on my street had a newspaper on their front lawn. Everybody. And I didn't have a paper route, but my neighbor did. And I think the habits of how people read newspapers is completely different. And the teens I know have no interest in reading the newspaper. That doesn't mean they have no interest in information. When people decide they want to go see a movie, they sometimes look at the LA Times, but they go online, they go to Fandango or some ticket site, and they look there. So I think our generation read the newspaper in a certain way. The next generation will read it in a different way. I think information will always be valuable, and I have faith in the future of reporting, but I don't know what a print newspaper is going to look like 10 or 20 years out. And I don't see it as really the death of anything. I think it's just changing. You know, when movies had no sound and all of a sudden there was sound, people said, oh, oh my goodness, what's going to happen with that? And it didn't make it worse. It made it different. And different isn't necessarily always bad. It's just different. Unless you're Clara Bow. Point taken. <laughs> yeah. But she didn't adapt. She got to adapt. That's... And also, we, we cover all these uh, entertainment businesses, and the one thing that everybody's grappling with today is disruptive new technology. Almost killed the record business. They're desperately trying to find a footing. It's changing Hollywood in a million ways. Well, it's definitely changing us. And I think that's the question is whether we're going to embrace the new technology, find new ways to attract people. Because I'm glad you guys might read a newspaper. Well, when I'm sitting with college kids, they're not. They want information in a different way. Our job, since they're the next generation, is to figure out how to plug into them. Because they do want information, but we have to go out and find them. Last question. Whose coverage is better, New York or L.A.? New York, I give that to you. <laughs> silly question. (laughs) I think the New York Times covers New York much better than than we cover New York. (laughs) You've been listening to Sharon Waxman, Laura Holson, Patrick Goldstein, and John Horn with moderator Dana Harris. This is Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A. Zocalo's radio broadcast is sponsored by 89.3 KPCC. Zocalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Special thanks tonight to the John Randolph Haynes and Dora Haynes Foundation of Los Angeles. For information on upcoming Zocalo events and to download past radio programs, visit ZocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. The producer for Zocalo Radio is Peter Stencil. Douglas Gary is our engineer. I'm Marco Stromer. Thanks for listening. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. I'm Steve Inskeep. And I'm Renee Montaigne. Key soldiers. Good morning. This is Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. As we speak, a news conference is scheduled to be underway in downtown Los Angeles. I'm Pat Morrison. Former Senator John Edwards, a North Carolina Democrat, has a book out. More NPR.